well, it's a nice space, isn't it? It's really nice. It's probably better than where we come from, to be honest. And uh, you know, it's probably nice to stay here, isn't it? <laughs> so a lot of computers around the room, as you can see. But uh, I just want to say a little bit about Hebrews for the moment, because Hebrews is a is a very theological book. And when you start looking into the book of Hebrews, you can get bogged down in so much theology that it loses that kind of, you know, that kind of pizzazz, that kind of the, the real message behind it, because you feel you've got to get the theology so right. And the whole book of Hebrews as well is all about uh, repetition. So it's very uh, difficult at the moment to be able to do one part of Hebrews and not think, uh, is that going to be next week? Am I going to be stealing out of next week? Or I've stolen out of the week before? Or and so there's a lot of repetition uh, in Hebrews. So sometimes it's very difficult to know how to pitch it right. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking uh, at the study in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. All right, uh, now I hope you're getting the emphasis of this series. Do you know what's the series called? Do you remember? Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than so far uh, the world. He's been greater than Moses. He's been greater than death. He's been greater than our weaknesses. He's been greater than our dead works. And he's been greater than Melchizedek, which is what Tim did last week. And this week, we will see that he is greater than the old covenant. Sounds really interesting, doesn't it? The old covenant. Now, you may recall, I preached actually about, oh, I don't know, about three months ago on covenants. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Can anybody tell me anything I said on that? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> oh, go on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Someone remembered something from all that time ago. That's amazing, isn't it? Don't you think it's amazing that we remember stuff that has been put in our heart from three months ago? Apparently, you lose about 95% of what you've heard within a week. So that's good. Well done, Liz. You've made my day. Made my day. <laughs> Firstly, I want to take us back to Hebrews chapter 1. Right, we're not going to go through the whole uh, of Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, very briefly, the first section in your Bible will be headed up something like the supremacy of God's Son. Now let's put things in perspective. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and he's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Holy Spirit revealed that to us this morning. I'm going to read that one more time, okay? He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, and he's the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now one of the enemy's aims in our lives is to undermine and diminish the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Jesus. The more self-sufficient and reliant upon our own strength that we become, the less we see the demonstration of God's power amongst us. And the danger of being Christians for a long time is that the word of God 
can become over-familiar. And we can stop hearing, and it can just be words that we hear. I've been reading a book recently, and it talks about an example about the supernatural becoming the natural. Now, when I was a little boy, I loved seeing a rainbow in the sky. It was amazing, wasn't it, to see a rainbow? Oh, look, as soon as it rained and there was a few clouds and the sun came out, you were looking for a rainbow, weren't you? It was exciting as a child to see a rainbow. Thunder and lightning. Oh, did anybody see the uh, storm recently? It was great, wasn't it? I love a great thunderstorm. A great light show. It was amazing. But you see, as we get older, I now realise that, you know, a rainbow is caused by light refracting through raindrops and it creates a prism which creates the colours. So the supernatural for me has moved into the natural. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the thunder and light, and I now know that it's positive ions and negative ions and, and all that happens and there's lightning and it all, you know, remember the old Van de Graaff generators that used to hold and your hair used to stand on end at school? Do you remember that? Fantastic days, weren't they? Until you realise that actually all that is supernatural, but because as soon as we learn about it and as soon as it settles, it becomes, it moves from the supernatural into the natural. And I want you to think about one of the examples given in this book that I was reading is about Indonesia. And they called the minister uh, to uh, this person who was dying. Please come immediately, he's dying. And basically what he's got was a, a, a sore throat and he was coughing. And the guy said, well, it's a cold. You don't need to worry about this. Give him some paracetamol. It's a cold. And these people berated this minister because he'd moved what was the supernatural healing power of God into the natural and no longer relied on the supernatural power of God but was relying on the natural. How many of you now, as soon as you get a sore throat, go to God and say, Lord, take this away from me? Some of you might. Or how many of you go for the paracetamol bottle think, well, it's going to be nine days. I'll have a sore throat for three. I'll have a a snotty nose for another three. I'll be coughing for a while after that and then it'll go away. How many people think that? Yeah, absolutely. We do. It's moved from the supernatural power of God in healing to something which is natural. And therefore, it's lost its power. The supernatural power of God. We don't go to God anymore because uh, the supernatural has become the natural. And yet, God is still in control of the whole world. He still causes the light to refract through the raindrops to create the rainbow. He still causes the negative ions and the positive ions to interact to create lightning and thunder. All those things are still supernatural, but they've moved into our natural world. Therefore, as soon as we know about it, as soon as we understand it, it happens, we know it happens. And that's how it becomes sometimes in Christian in our Christian walk with the Word of God. The Word of God moves from the supernatural, which is what it is, to the natural. Now, for generations, uh, the enemy has used legalism, legalism to divert Christians to be superficial and external as opposed to the substance which is Christ himself. And you can read about that in Colossians 2. If he can get our focus onto rules and regulations, we can be fooled into thinking that we're good Christians. You know, you have a good week and, and you know, you haven't done much wrong and, and uh, you've been reading your Bible every day. You're still pretty good about yourself, aren't you? You can be. You can be. I'm a pretty good Christian. Uh, but if someone sins down the road, you know, leave it like that. Isn't that true? 
And legalism, legalism becomes the, the motivating factor. Oh, I'm sort of a good Christian. It's about me. I'm proud about being a good Christian. But it's not about that. The focus is actually upon Jesus. If the person and work of Jesus Christ is not our focus and joy, we can do all sorts of outward things but miss the vital thing that our righteousness is only found in Christ. Does anyone here have a life insurance policy or a health insurance policy? Yeah? Okay, well it's okay, it's not sin to have a life insurance policy. You can pay me to do. And yet some people would say, well, no, you can't have a life insurance policy because, um, you know, if God, God's in control of my life, some people would say that. If you have an insurance policy, a life policy, or a health insurance policy, do you know you do know what it covers, right? Do you read? Have you read your policy to see what it covers? Yeah. Okay. Consequently, you might you might end up paying for something that the policy covers. Does anybody have a case card? Do you know what a case card is? A case card is a card that you can take into a restaurant and you get it get your meal half price in a certain restaurant. Now I can tell you the amount of restaurants I've been to, I've had my case card in my pocket, I've eaten the meal, I've paid the bill afterwards and I've gone home and I'm thinking another thing in case card and you look them up online, oh no you've paid the full price for a meal that should have been half price and that's what it is with policies as Christians we are often ignorant of the great benefits that we enjoy in Jesus as a result the enemy takes advantage of this and we end up paying for things that are covered under the policy. For example, we can be plagued by guilt when the policy says, I will remember their sins no more. Whoever has been guilty of something that they have done. When Jesus says in this new covenant that I will remember your sins no more. We can feel alienated, secondly, from God and his people, whereas the contract stipulates I will be their God and they shall be my people. We can put ourselves under man-made uh, rules and regulations, whereas God says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. So instead of knowing the privileges of being free, we can find ourselves enslaved and not taking benefit of the covenant that we're in. Okay, so the first readers then, of the epistle to the Hebrews, were tempted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism because they were being persecuted. Now, we can understand that, can't we? There would be a lot of people in church today who, would, if there was significant persecution, would give up their faith. If you thought you were coming to church today and you didn't know whether you were going to die or not, you didn't know whether people were going to come in, and that has happened around the world, hasn't it, in church buildings where people come in, blow themselves up. But we don't expect it, do we? We're not expect we weren't expecting that Sunday morning. And neither were those people. But lots of people would give up Christianity under persecution. And these people thought, what is this about? Why is your persecution for their faith in Christ? Why not just go back the old ways that they followed uh, for centuries? So to counter uh, this danger, the author of Hebrews points out why there can be no going back to the old covenant. This is where we pick it up in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to it. It says this, Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, uh, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second one. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant, and I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, uh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Wow, that's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of theology in there as well. And it's very hard sometimes to make theology anything less than dry theology. It's got to mean something. In the first part of this passage, okay, verses 1 through to 6, there are three points that I'm going to pick up. The first three in verse 1. Our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The author states that the main point of what he has been arguing, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is in contrast to the Levitical priests who were weak and imperfect, which we read about in Hebrews 7. They served in the earthly tabernacle on behalf of the people. But Jesus, our priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which Tim spoke about last week, has ascended into heaven and taken his seat at the right hand of God. This is a direct quote from David's psalm, 110, verse 1. Now, why is that significant? Well, firstly, the Levitical priests always stood when they were in the tabernacle or temple, indicating that their work was never done. But Jesus has taken his seat at the right hand of God's throne, signifying that his work is complete. You know, when you've done something, you've had a hard day's work, you come home, what do you do? You sit down. I've done that, that's done, I'm finished. And Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And it was finished. 
The work that he came to do, which was to purify us from our sin, the work had been finished and he sat down. But where did he sit down? He sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of the throne is a place of honour, power and exaltation. In the heavens refers to the dwelling place of God. So then, rather than this imperfect human priest who can only enter the Holy of Holies once a year and never stay there for long, because he didn't stay there for long. If you were a priest, you wouldn't want to stay in that Holy of Holies for long, would you? You'd want to get in there, do a bit of sacrifice, and get out. Why was? Why is that? Why do you think you'd want to get out? Because you'd be afraid of the power and the judgment and the awesomeness of God. You'd be more relieved when you're out of the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, than you would be in it. We have a high priest seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. The point is, why would you even consider going back to the old system when you have a high priest who is permanently seated in God's presence? So why would you want to go back to the priestly system here when you could have the priestly system where um, Jesus is sat in the very presence of God in such an exalted position, and not for a little while, but permanently. What a difference. The second point here is that Jesus ministers in what is called the true heavenly sanctuary. What do I mean by that? Well, the main point here is that the earthly tabernacle, as we know it, was only a shadow. Consider your own shadow for a minute, okay? When the light shines and the shadow comes up behind you in front of you, depending where the light is, it's an image of you, isn't it? But it's not really you, is it? It's an image of you, but it's not really you. I was in Ikea yesterday. Have you been to Ikea? Ikea is a very interesting place, isn't it? Because you can walk around Ikea, and there's all these different rooms. And you can go in these different rooms, and it kind of feels a bit like home. Because you think, oh, actually, this is what my house could look like. And they're very clever how they put them together. So, but there's lots of these pretend rooms, uh, and they're furnished to look like a room to give you an idea of what your real house might look like. You could say it's a shadow. It's a bit like a replica of what you could have in your own home. Not the best example in this situation, but it is an example. So the true tabernacle is the very presence of God in heaven, and sanctuary refers to this holy of holies within the tabernacle. Although Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, he's not inactive. He's still ministering as a priest. And the author's point here in both verse 2 and verse 5 is that this sanctuary and tabernacle in heaven is the real thing. It's the tabernacle in heaven which is the real thing. This is just a shadow on earth of what is happening in heaven and what is going to happen in heaven. Now, to support this, he cites uh, Exodus 25 verse 40 which says, uh, or where the Lord told Moses to make all of all things according to the pattern that he'd been shown on the mountain. Remember when Moses, he went up to the mountain and God said, okay, Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle. I want you to build this place of worship. And this place of worship needs to be like this. He said, have this, 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 this. In other words, Moses didn't design it himself. He didn't go down and think, well, that's a good idea. I'll get, I'll get some architects together and design it. God designed the tabernacle. And he designed it so that he could reveal some specific truths about the person and work of Jesus. It was a limited earthly picture of something which was heavenly and spiritual. So then, 
third thing is that since Jesus ministers in heaven rather than on earth, he has obtained, verse 6, a more excellent ministry. It must have been an impressive sight, must it, to have seen the priest in all his regalia going through the elaborate rituals at the tabernacle. Uh, you know, the people would have had a few minutes of suspense, you know, where the priest disappeared through the curtain. Nobody had been in there. So nobody knew, apart from the priest, what it was like inside of there. Nobody had been there. And nobody dared go there. So they might be thinking, I wonder what he's doing. Wouldn't you? I wonder what, was in, what happened in there. What's going on behind the curtain? And there'd be a hush when suddenly the priest would come out. They, they said the priest used to wear bells around his uh, tunic because so they could still hear that he was alive. Am I right in saying to you, I might be wrong on this, did he not go in with a, some rope so that they could pull him out in case he did die while he was in there? Yeah, but goodness me. That's a different thought about the awesomeness of God, isn't it? I am giving my life. I'm going in. I potentially might have to give my life for you. But the guys, you know, with the rope, they just got happy that he'd come out and they didn't have to pull him out dead. I suppose it's what it gives is a, a real sense of the awesomeness of who God is and his holy presence. But what the author's saying here is that was nothing compared to where Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Their yearly ritual was nothing compared to our high priest offering himself once for all on the cross and is now serving in heaven on our behalf. His heavenly ministry is much more excellent than their earthly ministry ever was. The other point being made here is this, that the heavenly and spiritual, listen, you're going to have to grasp this, the heavenly and the spiritual is more real than the earthly and visible. Oh, it is it though. It is it. Is it for you? Is it for you? Here the writer to the Hebrews is making the point that the earthly tabernacle was not the real thing. The real tabernacle is in heaven. Now let's consider ourselves for a minute. We are much more comfortable living in our earthly experience, which is our reality. Your life today, this is your reality. Your life at home is your reality. But there's more than your reality. There's things that we can't see which are outside of our reality. And that's more, what the, the, the uh, Hebrews writer is saying, that is more real. That is more real. That sense is more real than the reality that you're living here. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things above that are on the earth. So then. That's all very well and good. But there was a problem with the old covenant. But it's okay. Uh, because in Hebrews 8, uh, 6 through to 13, we read that Jesus mediates a better covenant which has been enacted and better promises. The better promises of this better co uh, covenant are those of the new covenant Jeremiah prophesied. And verses 8 to 12 is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, verse, verses 31 to 34. In chapter 8, verse 7, 
because the Fetic Covenant would not have been needed if the First Covenant had been faulty. So in other words, if the First Covenant was good enough, why would you have a Second Covenant? Well, the fact is it wasn't. It was rubbish. It was just rubbish because it was ordained by God, but it didn't do the job that it's supposed to do. Now, think as a Jewish person for a minute. might be hard to do that. You are a Jewish person. The idea that the law of Moses was defective in any way would have been unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. The law was the foundation of their entire way of life. It was the basis of their religious worship. It was what was being a Jew. It was being a Jew. That was what it was all about. But in chapter 7, the author argues that the change of the priesthood required a change of the law also, since the two were inextricably bound together. He uses Psalm 110, verse 4, to show that David had predicted the change of this priesthood. Here he cites, again, Jeremiah 31, to show that the Old Testament itself also predicted a new covenant that would displace the old Mosaic covenant. The reason for replacing the old covenant was salvation itself. So he's quick radical. Was the law defective? Which I think the answer is to that. Was the law defective? Was God? No, it wasn't. It wasn't the law that was defective. What was defective? We were. We were the problem. The law was great. The law was perfect. The law was great. God had put this law in place. We're the problem. We're the problem because we can't keep it. So he's quick to add that the problem was not with the law itself, but with the people who failed to keep it. Paul says the same thing. Your law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's in Romans 7. But he goes on to say, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. In other words, the law was rubbish compared to your rubbishness. It didn't matter how many rules and regulations you had. There was always going to be going to be a problem. Straight on. God decided to make a new covenant. In this covenant, we're very blessed as Gentiles as well because we were grafted in. We were grafted in. We were brought into fellowship as a result of this new covenant because the old covenant was for the Jews only. This covenant is for all, including us, brought in as Gentiles. The idea uh, of this should make us very, very excited because there would have been no hope for us as Gentiles uh, previously. The new covenant was going to be distinctly different from the old covenant that Israel didn't keep. The new covenant would involve God putting his law into the minds and hearts of his people that we've just read. Now in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, which is just prior to the death of Moses, Moses told the Israelites this. He said, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. They had the law, which was given to them, but was written on tablets of stone. But they lacked the heart to obey. That was the difference. But in Ezekiel 36, which again parallels the new covenant promises in Jeremiah 31, God promises this. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Paul rejoices in Romans 6, verse 17, when he says that through uh, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. The new covenant blessing changes our hard hearts. Verse 10 goes on to show us that the new covenant involves a close relationship between God and his people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And that's, that's nothing new, actually, because in Exodus chapter 6, God promised this to Israel. God has promised this to Israel. I will be your God and you shall be my people. But when you're given a list of rules and regulations, it's not the same as having a person die on the cross, enduring a penalty for your sin, realizing his innocence, and understand that he did that for me so that I could inherit eternal life. That makes me beholden to him. That makes me, uh, he died, in other words, he died my death. As a result of that, I intend to live a life uh, devoted to him. So there's a change. There's a change from following rules to following out of a love which comes out of your heart, realizing what Christ did when he died on the cross. And the new covenant means that every person in verse 11 can know the Lord. The knowledge of God is no longer confined to a privileged few. All those in the new covenant will have their own intimate and personal knowledge of God. This is the part which I want to grab because this is the most important for you and me. And that is this. Firstly, I'm going to walk you through the scene of Christmas. We're going to go on a journey. There's a, there's a classic word we used to say. If he didn't agree with you, he would put his arm on your shoulder and say, Dave, come and take a walk with me in the Garden of Understanding. <laughs> and if he disagreed with me, he said, look, if what you're saying, if I agree with what you're saying, then we go for a walk. That's it. <laughs> I, lo I love sayings like that. They just make me laugh. I think it's really funny. But he'd put his arm up. And, and I want to put my arm around you and I want to take you into the temple. All right? Now, okay, so we enter in the temple, and the first part, we go through one of the gates, the outside gates. We're all Gentiles, but I want you to assume for a minute that you're a Jewish man. You go through the court of the Gentiles, bearing in mind that you and I couldn't go beyond that. You went through the court of the Gentiles, and you walked up to what was known as the beautiful gate. You walked through the beautiful gate into what was known as the court of women. Only Jewish people, incidentally, go through the beautiful gate into this area. That's the Jew, Jews only area. You go to the court of women. And then before you will be some steps. And as you climb the steps, women had to stay behind. You couldn't go. You had to stay. The men, Jewish men, would climb the steps. And at the top of the steps, this awesome panorama would meet you. Imagine for a minute. If you get the opportunity, there's a 10-minute video on YouTube which is titled um, Solomon's Temple Explained. I'd advise that you go and have a look at it. 
because it will show you a visual presentation. I could have showed much more, but there have been too long. But um, have a look at it, because it's really interesting, and it will help you understand some of this that we're talking about this morning. So it's 10 minutes, head it up, Solomon's Temple Explained. altar slightly to the left of it yeah and what has happened well let me tell you it's the day of atonement the priests are manically busy can you imagine manically busy and this is why they were dealing with sin offerings they were dealing with peace offerings trespass offerings burnt offerings grain offerings all required for different types of sin People were lined up bringing containers of grain, holding goats and sheep ready for slaughter. Whole queues of people. It must have been a manic scene, mustn't it? You're standing near the altar with a list of your sin and all your offerings, different offerings for different sins. Can you imagine what it's like? What, what that's like? Can you imagine what that might, might have been like? If you and I had to, first of all, you've got to go to the temple, so you've got to make a, 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 you've got to travel. You've got to travel to the temple, which might be two days away. You've then got this great list of sins. You've got to take goats and bulls and grain and everything with you. And then you've got to queue up for the priests. The priests are manically busy. They're stood doing this thing all the time. They're, and what are they doing? They're slaughtering, slaughtering um, animals and, and all that kind of thing in front of the altar. Horrible, horrible barbaric things. That's the picture I was painting. Can you imagine the noise? The smells? They were offering for unintentional sins. Well, that's the sin you didn't even know you smelled. Think about that. Could have been there, done that. Better make sure we didn't have a grain offering, we didn't have a burnt offering. And the problem is, you've done this, you've done your grain offering, you've slaughtered your lamb or whatever, and the altar's all been done, and you walk down the steps and you upset your neighbour on the way out. You say something bad to them, and you think, oh, I better, I better go back and do it again. And what people were doing was going back to the temple, not just once a year, but twice a year, three times a year, sometimes multiple times a year, doing the same thing again and again and again, year after year after year. Do you get the theme? Can you see why the new covenant is so much better than that? Can you see what Jesus has done when he died and when he walked the Calvary road with a cross on his back with his face like a flint for you and me and he hung there on the cross with his blood being shed for my sin for all time, for every single thing that I've done previously, for what I'm doing right now, for my thoughts, which can be sinful as well, for my future sins. Everything, everything is completely finished. When he died on the cross and his, shoved, uh, his, his blood was shed and he said, it is finished, it was finished forever. The old covenant obsolete. Verse 13 says from the time that God promised the new covenant the old became obsolete and was about to disappear. Jeremiah's prophecy which happened in 600 BC started the countdown to the time when the old covenant would disappear 
that in AD 70, when Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, Israel ceased to exist as a nation, and the sacrifices which were the heart of the old covenant system ceased to be offered at that point. Jesus gave us the new covenant. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you did that for us. So what does this mean for us? If you're not a Christian, this is what it means. It means if you've not asked God to forgive your sins, if you don't know God personally through Christ, and if his laws are not written in your heart, you are outside of this new covenant. That's what the Bible teaches. And to die in such a condition would mean that you would face God's righteous judgment and condemnation. But it says, but if you will turn from your sins and trust in Christ's death as payment for your sins, you will begin to enjoy the blessing and benefit of that new covenant. That's what it means. So when you gave your life to Christ, that what it, that's what it meant. But what does it mean if you're not, if you are a Christian? Want to ask yourself this for a minute. I'm done. I'm finishing with this. If Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high, the mediator of this new covenant, the consuming focus of our Christian life, is He the consuming focus of our Christian life? Do I daily seek to know Him, to love Him, and to glorify Him because He gave Himself on the cross for me? These are the challenge. This is the challenge. While Christianity requires obedience, it is not the external obedience of rules and rituals, but obedience from the heart out of a love for God. Thank you, Jesus, for being our great high priest of a better covenant than the old. I'm going to finish with this. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1, I've read this already. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your great covenant. Lord, such a responsibility upon us. When we realize the enormity of what you've done and the Calvary, it humbles us and makes us realize that your new covenant freedom for us. Your grace is freedom for us from the bondage of the law on our sin. We are no longer enslaved, but we have been set free by the blood of Jesus. We just want to thank you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. I, I guess the, the retort to that today is, how do I respond to that? How do I respond to that? I just want to know what Jesus wants from me and the way he wants.